unless you put a lot of effort into avoiding them, you probably have genetically modified organisms in your kitchen right now. In the United States, corn, soy, potatoes, along with many other yummy staples, are artificially resistant to certain herbicides. It wasn't until a few years ago that brands even had to label bioengineered products in the United States. But attitudes are different in Europe. When one Dutch plant biologist noticed an unusually vibrant orange petunia at a bus station in Helsinki, he didn't mean to start a worldwide flower massacre, but that's what happened. I'm Ellen Earhart, and this is Plant Crimes, a podcast where we talk about a different botanical misadventure every week. First, I want to introduce Timu Thierry, an agricultural sciences professor at the University of Helsinki. He's the guy that found the flowers. We've been studying flowers and flower development and flower colors for, let's say, 30 years. I did my PhD at the time when gene transfer to plants was very new, 84, 85. I did my experimental work at the University of Ghent in Belgium, one of the three places where the genes were first transferred into plants. These ornamental orange petunias are visually special and interesting. Petunias can be pink, purple, yellow, red, even blue, which is an unusual hue in the botanical world. But they're not usually orange, as Thierry knew because he's been studying flower colorings for decades. He pocketed some of the interesting petunias and went back to his lab. I see this wonderful orange petunia at railway station in Helsinki, my hometown, and I thought that, oh, this plant is kind of fooling me. It looks very orange, but it of course cannot be orange because petunia is not orange. There must be red and yellow somehow on top. I took one flower put it in the freezer, forgot about it. But that wasn't the end of the story. When Thierry remembered the weird flower, he got to work. These days, it's not always easy for scientists to tell whether something has been genetically modified or not because of technological advances like CRISPR. But Thierry was able to test for specific indicators of genetic modifications. Scientists in Cologne, Germany, first developed the orange petunias by inserting a maize gene into the flower in the 80s. A Dutch seed company bought the license to that technology, but they didn't end up selling the seeds commercially. I then saw it next spring, so I did a chemical analysis of that, and it had the orange pigment. It's called pelargonidin. So this was weird and exciting. So did the breeders, after all, find a mutant form of this petunia, the enzyme? Or is it an escape transit? It's quite easy to test the latter. It's much more difficult to prove the former. Just running a couple of PCRs, it was obvious that there is a maze gene in this line. I read about this story in Science News in a gorgeous feature by Kelly Cervik. I called Cervik to get her perspective on the case. We talked about how the story of the bright orange petunia massacre feels pretty nostalgic in 2019. In a way, this is a story about kind of an old-timey 
type of genetic modification, right? The way that they confirmed that these plants had been genetically modified was by looking for, among other things, agrobacterium, which was this method of infecting plants and shuttling a new gene into them. And that agrobacterium happens to be a plant pest, which is one of the reasons why USDA is so concerned about it. But all of this original engineering happened in the late 80s and early 90s. And agrobacterium is not really the backbone of genetic engineering anymore, right? We have these sort of gene editing like technologies like CRISPR that are totally changing the way people think about engineering plants. And also the way that the genome of an engineered plant looks is just much less obvious now. And so, yeah, I think in a way, this is a story about an old technology um, and a different set of issues are really at play when you think about more modern engineered crops. So the world was simpler back in the 80s and 90s when the orange petunias were created, which means that 21st century scientist Timu Thiri was able to tell that something was up. He decided to go back and gather more petunias, which turned out to be not very difficult because the city was planting them in mass. This was now spring. I got some new plants from City Garden of, of Helsinki. They were planting them again in 16, 2016. So they were replanting them in the same garden where you had found them the year before? All over the city. It was kind of city decoration. It was in the railway station, but in many other places. And they had it again the next year. During then that winter, I a careful analysis, and I figured out what they are, where they probably come from, that they are from this Max Planck Cologne experiment. Tier decided to try to call someone in charge. He reached out to a city gardener to voice his concerns. But the official said there would be no problem, because it was a special year in Finland. I called this gardener of the city, who happened to be the girlfriend of our gardener, and said that there is maybe a problem with these orange petunias, that they are transgenic. And she just said that, oh no, we are not going to have orange colors next summer because it was the 100th years anniversary of Finnish independence of Finland. So the colors will be blue and white, <laughs> like in our flag. <laughs> Thierry decided to try again. He called one of his old PhD students. So then I, I was kind of ready with my results. Then I called the authorities, actually the secretary of the Gene Technology Board, who happens to be my PhD student from years back. I called her and said, I found now this thing that there are these GM petunias in many places, like in Helsinki, but also all over. You get them from Amazon and so on. And what will happen next, I was asked. And then I realized that, of course, he had to take action. We didn't publish our stuff yet. The authorities in Finland started to do their own research, own PCRs, and found this out. And that's when the bloodbath started. A journalist from Science magazine called me also and interviewed me at that time. That journalist was Kelly Servick, who we heard from earlier. Here's this part of the story from her perspective. So how did you first hear about this story? So I looked back in my emails. The way this story started was I got an email from my editor in May of 2017 with the subject line, uh-oh, GM petunias are loose in the USA. <laughs> he was forwarding me a press release from USDA's Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service, APHIS, which was one of the more colorful and enjoyable press releases I have read from that agency. And it basically said, 
we recently learned that several varieties of petunias that are genetically engineered to have orange, red, or purple flowers have been imported to the U.S. without the required authorization. And we're working with breeders and growers to make sure that they get withdrawn from distribution and destroyed. And they also said, consumers, if you have bought such a petunia, you don't need to worry about this. There's no health risk or environmental risk from these things. It's just that they have to go through us and they didn't. And somehow they're on the market. And then it listed all these really lovely names of the offending petunia varieties, which I can read you a couple of because they're wonderful. African Sunset, Trilogy Mango, Trilogy Deep Purple, Fortunia Early Orange, Hell's Bells Improved. I like that one. Petunia Salmon Ray, and Sweetunia Orange Flash. <laughs> so, so yeah, it was, uh, it was a delightful email as far as uh, biotech regulatory emails go. We soon found out that European regulators had learned about these petunias some days earlier and were also busy rooting them out, so to speak. <laughs> because scientists originally engineered the petunias with a plant virus, they were especially unwelcome in most places. The U.S. usually has a pretty laissez-faire attitude towards genetic modification. But even here there were consequences. As Cervic wrote, the USDA gave ornamental flower growers in the U.S. several choices. They could incinerate, autoclave, bury, compost, or dispose of the plants in a landfill. Even though the petunias are annuals, which means they die after a year, they were still kind of a liability. How did they go about getting rid of the petunias? Did they just do it via mechanical mechanisms, like pulling them out, or did they do it with herbicide? Like, what was the process like? I mean, it's easy to kill petunias. That's what you do when your flowers are over. And you put them in the garbage. They don't spread from the garbage bin. So all the ornamental producers, all the breeders, they went through their stocks. It's easy to identify once you know what you're looking for. But it took 20 years before somebody thought that this should be looked into. So all the breeders were then discarding these lines and clearing their houses. And I remember sitting with one of the Dutch breeders. And I was just saying there that, sorry, I'm sorry what I did. And they said, yes, it was very expensive, but it's okay. It was a funny reaction. It was okay because everybody had the same problem. All breeders had to do the same. Nobody got advantage over the others. And what's the big deal? Like, why go to all this trouble to get rid of the petunias when they'll just die in the winter? So actually, it wasn't required that people got rid of their petunias. They could just sort of let them flower, and they just couldn't buy new ones next spring. But those who are selling the ornamentals, they couldn't sell them anymore because they weren't cleared for the GM status, which is really expensive. To do that, you have to do all kinds of tests that regular cultivars you don't need to do. So they were harmless, but they were illegal. That's why they had to be destroyed, was against the rules. There's been many instances of genetically modified plants escaping the perimeters of a study or field site. So many, in fact, that Wikipedia has a whole very interesting article dedicated to biocontainment of genetically modified organisms. Under the Notable Escape section, there's a lot of these stories. One guy found Roundup-resistant canola on his land, harvested the seeds, and then the agricultural giant Monsanto sued him for patent infringement. 
The case went all the way to the Supreme Court in 2004, which held in favor of Monsanto. There's also been quite a few problems with glyphosate-resistant wheat. In 1999, Thai scientists said there was glyphosate-resistant wheat in a shipment from the Pacific Northwest, which was very mysterious to everyone because the glyphosate-resistant wheat experiment was still very much in testing stages from 1998 to 2005. After that, Monsanto decided not to put it in circulation, but the strain appeared again as a weed on a farm in Oregon in 2013. This was a huge deal. The U.S. government could have fined Monsanto a clean million, which honestly wasn't a huge deal compared to the $8 billion the U.S. stood to lose in export money. We're the largest exporter of wheat in the world. In the end, just Japan, Taiwan, and South Korea stopped their U.S. wheat imports for a while, according to an AP News story. More unapproved GMO wheat popped up at Montana State University's Southern Agricultural Research Center in Huntley, Montana in 2014, according to an NPR article. One of my first listeners asked if the wheat and other illegal genetically modified plants had to be destroyed like the petunias. On the web, I found a guide in a farmer's trade magazine of what growers should do if they find GM wheat in their field. They are supposed to immediately call APHIS, A team of investigators turn up at the farm in question and identify the source of the outbreak. They then destroy all of the wheat in question and try to ensure the plants won't escape again. They then destroy all of the wheat in question and try to ensure the plants won't escape again. People have very strong opinions about GMOs, and I'm not here to argue whether they are good or bad. But I spoke with Thierry about the potential hazards of genetically inserting herbicide resistance and how we should probably weigh that more significantly in our collective scales than just messing with the flower colors. Just to gauge your thoughts about this, when you were the whistleblower for the bright orange petunias, you kind of didn't care that much about all of the petunias getting rounded up since they were harmless. With these new GM plants, there's more of a risk involved. Um, Would you say I'm characterizing that accurately? People should look into the final product, what was done in this particular breeding program. And what is done now is is the regulations are mostly based on the technology that is used. I mean, you can do stupid things with traditional breeding as well, like herbicide resistance, which is kind of an example where you are decreasing the use of agrochemicals. You can do herbicide breeding with uh, traditional techniques as well, just by selecting. Eutogenesis and selecting, you can, can do that. So in my mind, you should regulate and control the end products of breeding instead of the methods. So you're saying Roundup resistance is a lot scarier than, like, being orange. I wouldn't say that Roundup is scary, but of course it has lots more effects than orange petunia. But I would say Roundup is a very special herbicide because it's so benign, it's so nice. And what is the result? It's the most used herbicide on the globe. And it's been used absolutely everywhere. That's the scary thing about Roundup. It's so safe that it is used, like, for example, in forced ripening of of the crop. And this, I think, is not very sort of natural. Otherwise, of course, it saves effort and fuel and things like that. And you can control weeds. So it's a two-sided thing. But of course, orange petunia, I mean, even if the whole city is full of orange petunias, 
I don't think there is this kind of point that there are too many of them. But there is, I would say, too much roundup use. In the end, there's a chance that a lot of escaped GMO plants won't be discovered. Someone has to be deliberately testing the genetic material, or spraying pesticide on a plant and then realizing that it didn't die, or be able to identify it on site, like Timutiri. The petunias seem pretty tame. In my opinion, and cervix, it's a little sad they were all destroyed. Not as sad as Miley Cyrus sitting on a Joshua tree, or an Austin dog dying because of toxic algae blooms. But, like, a little sad. Even the people I talked to at the USDA and regulatory agencies in Europe, I think, felt kind of bad about what had to happen here because nobody had any real concerns about the safety of these plants. And they were beautiful. And the reason that they had been around for so long and managed to get distributed and bought was because people liked them and thought they were lovely. So it really was just this case of the origins of these plants getting lost to history and regulators having to follow the book. And when something slips past them, they have to pick up the pieces afterwards. I've got some news for y'all. This week, I'm on Popular Science's podcast, The Weirdest Thing. I shared a fact that I learned while researching the plant crimes episode about lemons and the mafia. Editor Rachel Feltman shared some wild information about penises in ancient Greece, and writer Eleanor Cummins talks about dimple-making machines, which, if that doesn't interest you, I do not know what will. Thanks to John Agnew and Elena Lacey for being my first listeners for this episode, and thanks to Nikki Duong for the plant crimes art. You can find Plant Crimes on social media or reach me via email at plantcrimes at gmail.com. If you like the show, please leave a review. It helps people find me. And thanks to the people who have left reviews already. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening.